Well, good evening. I certainly enjoyed that singing. I believe that was the first time I've ever heard that song, and it was a very beautiful song. I, I got the songbook and looked at what year that was written. The lyrics uh, were written in about 17, I mean 1878. And so it was a very, very spiritual song and also a very beautiful tune. I enjoyed that very much and appreciate you being here tonight as we study together about zeal for God. And uh, uh, different ones have asked, did I have any good stories or anything about Bob over uh, when we went over to Uganda, and uh, Bob was a great companion and worked there. Uh, He was kind of generally boring. I mean, there's not a lot of great stories. I mean, I only saw him panic twice, you know, so so, uh, I I may disclose that at some time in the future, you know, just leave that hanging over you if that's okay, if that's okay with you. But I certainly enjoyed being with him and, and being with you this week. As we, in common cause, want to uh, hold forth the, gospel, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and the uh, powerful words of the Bible that help us to in our walk with God. We've been studying zeal for God, and Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, you know, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us, which means we are owned totally by Jesus Christ. We no longer own ourselves. And since he owns us, it is a privilege and an honor to serve Him and based on what He's done for us. And we are, this verse says we are to be zealous for good deeds, which means a passionate devotion to God, a burning desire to please the Lord. So we talked about different aspects of zeal. We've talked about being alert in our praying. That's something that we actively do. But also, uh, zeal applies to our attitude as well. I don't know if we think... Uh, that zeal, we have a zealous attitude toward God in the service of God. We talked about last night zeal for meditation. Uh, I was just thinking of the verse, Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful uh, things from your law. That If I meditate, think on that, have a zeal for that, it'll help improve our Bible study, personal Bible study when we come to worship or to our Bible classes. But there's another aspect of of zeal in our mind that impacts our action. When we think about what is the hardest command in the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? What is the hardest command in the Bible? We're going to be talking about zeal for repentance tonight. Someone has said that, repentance is the hardest command in the Bible. J.W. McGarvey had a book of sermons. And he had one sermon on repentance. And he said that repentance is the most difficult command in the Bible because it must, uh, repentance must overcome the obstinacy of the human will. And I thought about that. And said, I think that's really correct. The hard thing is not getting people to be baptized. The hard thing is getting people to repent of their sins, to turn away from their sins. The hard thing is not getting people saved. The hard thing is getting to convince people they are lost. And when people understand they are lost, they will, what must I do to be saved? And they're very eager to do whatever God wants them to do. But when we think about be zealous and repent, about how important it is for us in our spiritual life to repent. I believe anyone of the age of accountability that goes to heaven, they must be a good repenter. Because sin bars the door of heaven. And to uh, avail ourselves to God's grace, we have to be willing to repent, to change our mind, and therefore to bring forth the fruit of repentance. So we're going to talk about zeal for repentance, and we're going to be talking about, do a brief survey 
of the seven churches of Asia, and then look at the church at Laodicea, where he told them to be zealous and repent. Repentance is not a topic that is as popular as topics that deal with like faith and hope and love, uh, heaven, Jesus, God. The, I have a, a book in my library that has these like quotable quotes for uh, different topics. And one of these books did not even have a section on repentance, even though repentance is a key biblical doctrine. And what you see here is a screenshot from my computer from Revelation chapter 2 and 3 of the seven churches of Asia, that the word repent is, is stated, is, is uh, mentioned or commanded eight times. This is the most uh, repentance-dense portion of Scripture that we will find where you have Jesus is, uh, there you have a picture of Jesus standing among the seven lampstands, holding the seven stars in His hand, and He is uh, evaluating the church. And if Jesus was standing here right in the middle of the church, and we were to hear him give an evaluation like he did of the seven churches, we would know that Jesus knows exactly our situation. And what we, what we see here in, in the seven churches of Asia, that out of the seven churches in the apostolic age, five of the churches had some sin in the congregation requiring repentance. And I don't know why people think that repentance is a, quote, negative thing, because the Bible says that repentance is unto life. Someone said that repentance is another word for aspiration, that I want to do better. And so repentance is key to, to personal growth, to, uh, to change, and to, to be what God wants me to be. When we look at the seven churches of Asia, the ones that are in red had no criticism. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Uh, the church at Ephesus, they needed to repent of their lack of love. Pergamum needed sound doctrine or truth. Thyatira needed holiness. They tolerated immorality. Sardis needed genuine life because they were dead. Laodicea I put in black because there was nothing commended at Laodicea. It was all critical. And that's the one he told them to be zealous and repent. And I think this is a, an important lesson because today people, you'll hear these uh, lessons sometimes. What's wrong with the church of Christ? And those people in the church of Christ, there's not love in the church of Christ. And there's not life and there's not zeal and there's not this and there's not that in the church of Christ. Well, that's not new in that Ephesus. They needed more love. The church is Sardis. They were dead. And what they needed to do is to listen to the words of Jesus and make correction wherever they needed to and to conform to the teaching of Jesus Christ. If, if we're doing something wrong, what's the solution to that? Go back to the Bible, read it in context, and make application. And that's all I got on that. It's not some mystical, better felt than told thing out there somewhere that's going to do the trick for us. They had problems in the first century, but they were correctable problems if we will have the humility. The antidote to, to uh, pride that keeps us from repenting. Um, uh, humility is the antidote to pride, which keeps us from repenting. What does that word repentance mean? Repent. Little means a change of mind. This is uh, Zadiates. He says it's to think afterward, mean to think differently. A complete change of mind. Not a regret, I'm sorry I got caught, 
But I see it in a totally different light. I thought it was okay before. I didn't see any problem with it. And now I know better. I see it in a different light. So it's a complete change of mind, a sorrowful sin, and a true change of heart towards God. Vine says to change one's mind or purpose, always in the New Testament, involving a change for the better and an amendment, the fruit, which is the fruit of repentance. It's the idea if I'm going the wrong way, I want to turn around and go the right way. Um, several years ago, my wife and I, we went down to Jacksonville, Florida. We went to a lectureship there, and after the lectureship, we were driving on the interstate. And my wife and I, as you probably have, your husband's wife, we got into a discussion about something. And, and the only thing that I remember about our discussion was, I was right, okay? And I felt it was my Christian duty to point out my wife, the error of her thinking, so she understood and so we went on and on, and we got off, and I got gasoline, and I, I hadn't been able to convince her yet. And so we got back in, on back on the interstate, kept driving and talking, and I noticed we had gone all the way back to Jacksonville. I did not pay attention. What? I, I, and, and so that was about wasted, you know, that was about an hour going the wrong way. Now, what I had to do is I had to repent. Okay, I'm going the wrong way. This is embarrassing. Going the wrong way. I need to turn around and go the right way. Okay. So I hope that in this lesson, that when we when we talk about the church at Laodicea, even though they had they were self righteous, puffed up, self satisfied, he says, I, "I love you, and that's why I want you to repent. I want you to be zealous and repent. We can all do better." And because the mind is the lever of human destiny. You sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an attitude, you reap a character. You sow a character, you reap a destiny. But repentance is the, our mind is the control center. And that's where we repent in our mind and in our heart. How well do we take correction? Uh, Psalm 141, let's read that. Let's see, is that my attitude toward repentance? Psalm 141, verse 5, where he says, Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is all upon the head. Let, let not my head refuse it. For still my prayers against their wicked deeds. He's saying if I am wrong, it would be something that would be refreshing if someone would correct me. There's a Russian proverb that says it's better... To be slapped with the truth and to be kissed with a lie. And I think that the idea of the restoration movement is that, that we want to go back to the Bible and leave aside all human tradition or errors and restore the pure truth of God's Word. Uh, some of you may remember uh, uh, Brother Rufus Clifford, uh, who preached in Nashville in Middle Tennessee many years ago, and uh, may have preached some in Alabama, but... Uh, we were talking about the West Franklin Church, West Main Church in Franklin. And, and back in the 1960s, he was preaching there. And uh, a brother who, who now is an elder in the church in Franklin at another congregation said that he went there, he, he was a member, he grew up in a denomination, and he heard Brother Clifford begin his lesson. And he began every lesson. He says, if I teach something that is contrary to God's Word, you would be my friend to point it out to me. And I will study the Bible, and if I see it's not according to God's will, I'll make correction, and I'll never preach it again. And this brother said, you know, I never heard that, 
in the denominational church where I attended. He found that very intriguing. If I'm wrong, I want to change, and you'll be my friend if you'll point that out to me. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 8, the verse I have listed there, says, uh, Correct a righteous man, and he will love you. So that's the idea of, of humility and sincerity in wanting to do what is right. And I think a good uh, description of the zeal to repent is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 11. And I have to ask myself, is this the kind of attitude that I have? Because in, in my experience in, in preaching, uh, Bob is a little older than I am, but I've been preaching about 33 years. And it's sort of a, a mixed bag in, in, in talking. Some people are very uh, appreciative and, oh, I'm so very sorry. And, and, yeah, I know I've got a problem and I'm sorry if I offended anyone. And they're, they're very humble and contrite. And then I've had other situations where people are very belligerent. And who do you think you are? And then they dispute uh, the, the, the facts of the case. Or they, they nitpick in the way in which you said it to try to divert attention from their, their sin and error. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, I have to ask myself, is this my attitude? Paul writes to the Corinthian church in, in, in 1 Corinthians. They had a man who had his father's wife and they were overlooking it. And Paul said they needed to uh, 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 deliver him over to Satan, that is, practice church discipline and identify him as not being a member of the church there. He was unfaithful. And apparently he, he had repented, but he had sinned against Paul in some way. You read that in chapter 2. And uh, this is my opinion, I think, how he had sinned against Paul, is he was the one that was instrumental in introducing these uh, Judaizing teachers or false teachers in 2 Corinthians, that denied Paul's authority. That was the main issue of 2 Corinthians. But notice what their attitude was. These others, brethren, didn't go along with it. A lot of these did not go along with that. And notice what he says in verse... Now, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow... That is, according to the will of God, produces a repentance without regret. It's never wrong to do the right thing. Leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death, like that of Judas, who simply drowned in self-pity. For behold, what earnestness, what this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. You say zeal to show they wanted to do the right thing? What avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. How can you, I think one of the easiest ways to tell if a person is truly sincere is their willingness to change? Is their willingness to take correction? A person might be sincere, and they might be wrong, but you can't be sincerely wrong after learning the truth. If you learn the truth, you're going to have to decide, am I going to continue to be sincere, or am I going to continue to be wrong? Because you can't be both. So they were willing, whatever they had done in this mess in Corinthians, at Corinth, they were willing to make it right. 
And, and, and sometimes it's just so refreshing to know that they're good brother and want to do what's right. You can tell they have a sensitive conscience. There was a brother in a congregation that uh, he had been missing services, and he was one of our deacons. And he had started a new business, and I'd ask him out to lunch, and we began to talk and said, I'd miss seeing you at church, and you, you know, y'all stopped coming regularly, and I'm just concerned about you. Is there anything I can do? And, and he, he was very contrite, and he said, yeah, I'd, you know, I've got my trying to get my new business off the ground, and I think I've really let that come before God, and I'm 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 real sorry about that, and I appreciate you talking to me about that. And this brother, he made a change, and he he is now an elder in the church there, and he's always said that that was helpful to him, someone taking the time to talk with him. So I think this zeal to repent is that if I'm wrong, I want to change to be right. Repentance is another name for aspiration. So what were the sins requiring repentance there in the seven churches of Asia? Let's just turn and do a quick survey of the churches there. And uh, and turn over to uh, Revelation chapter 2. The church at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, they were tooth and toenail for truth. At the church at Ephesus, you read in verse 2, he says, I know you're tall, you're perseverance, you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Well, they they were a hard-working church. I mean, if they had done door knocking, I mean, probably most of them would show up. Uh, they exercised church discipline. They were concerned about doctrinal accuracy, and uh, there are people who say, oh, you know, there's Phariseeism in the church. You're too nitpicking. Did the Lord criticize them for being concerned about doctrinal accuracy? No. In fact, he commends them, verse 6, about them hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So he didn't say, stop doing that, but what did he rebuke? He said, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. They did the right thing without the right attitude. It was loveless. And Christians, we have to be balanced. We have to have the proper attitude, the proper spirit, the proper love for God and for our brethren. We have to have the right, the spirit of Christ. But we also need to have that love also wants to conform to the exact teaching of Jesus Christ. So they were doing the right thing with the wrong attitude. And he said, now, if you don't, Repent, I'm going to remove the lampstand. You're no longer a Christ-approved church. And that may have shocked them. I mean, they may have thought that they were the soundest of the sound. What was wrong at Pergamum? Well, the problem at Pergamum was conformity to the world, a compromised biblical doctrine. Even though they were doing some good things at Pergamum, he says, I have this against you, verse 14 of chapter 2, because you have some, not all, some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, this may be that there were some who just held this private view that it would be okay to have the doctrine of Balaam. And the doctrine of Balaam was basically compromise. The doctrine of Balaam, you read about that in Numbers 22 through 25, about Balak the king of Moab asked uh, Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And he couldn't do it. God wouldn't let him. But he told him, well, if you want to, trip them up because he was a covetous prophet, basically get them to uh, invite them to worship with you in, in idolatry and commit fornication. And so that was a means of compromise. 
And so you had some that had a compromising attitude toward sound doctrine. They didn't want to be too narrow. They did not want to be too exclusive. One of the charges against Christians in the first and second century was they were haters of mankind. Because many of the public events and things, the trade guilds, they would have worship to a pagan god. They would have uh, sacrifices to idols. And Christians could not participate with that. So the sin was that, that they would not stand for the truth. And they needed to correct that. Thyatira, that's sexual immorality. Now you notice Thyatira in verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance that your deeds of late are greater than at first. They were growing, had faith and love. I mean, this was a happening church. I mean, it was a dynamic church. I mean, that might, might have been some big mega church. Things are exciting. And people will say, you know, if there's just energy and enthusiasm and growth and people are coming here and we're growing, it must be blessed by God. Well, he commended the things that were right, but notice what he said in verse 20. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservant astray. So they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So the sin that needed correction was to repent of tolerating sexual immorality. In our society, you have homosexual marriages. You have adultery. You have some churches have a don't ask, don't tell policy about marriage. The idea is that uh, Jesus in Matthew 19, when he taught his uh, narrow divorce law or his law, one man, one woman for one lifetime. And then with one exception, sexual immorality, the disciples were shocked by that. So Jesus was out of step with what they were thinking, but it was narrow. And the idea is that they wanted to uh, accommodate what was going on in that culture, which was very common. So they had immorality going on in the church. And then Eusardus, what was their problem? And you look at these these seven churches, which is like a cross-section of any type of situation you may see in a a typical church. And, And really, most churches are a combination of what you see here, different traits. The church of Sardis had a reputation that they were alive. Man, they were living on their past glory. We've done a lot of great things. And he says, I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. So they had deceived themselves. Their mind had played tricks on them. They had rationalized and they were lethargic. And then Laodicea, what was their problem? Their problem, their sin that needed repentance was their spiritual lukewarmness. In uh, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, uh, they weren't strong one way or the other. They were just sort of comfortable. You're neither hot nor cold. I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. You know, lukewarmness is a sin. It's a sin, just like they were tolerating adultery and immorality and fornication in the church. It's a sin, just like a lack of love. So, some may think that this was a reference to how they got the hot springs of Hierapolis would pipe this hot water down to Laodicea, and by the time it came to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. You can do a lot of stuff with hot water, you can do a lot of stuff with cold water, you know, it's cold and refreshing and 
You can cook things with hot water. There's not a lot of things you can do with tepid water. You know, Christianity is either the greatest thing in the world or it's a lie. Jesus must be valued above all or not at all. We can't be mildly interested in the gospel. So that was their sin. Those were the roadblocks. And so how is our zeal to repent? Well, how did he motivate them to be zealous and repent? Now, he said that specifically to uh, Laodicea, but five of the seven churches he said to repent. What did he say would motivate repentance? You know, he wasn't you know, trying to, to grind them into the ground. He was trying to give them, help them to see themselves as God sees them and give a positive solution. You can change. Well, the church at uh, Ephesus, he said in verse 5, Remember from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds that you did at first. You know, our life is a series of peaks and valleys spiritually. It's not a straight line up. We're all going to have peaks and valleys in our life. And when we're down, we need to think about, sometimes we like, people who have kind of a pessimistic attitude, they ruminate on the low lights. Uh, there's the highlights, I guess, and the low lights. Okay, so they ruminate on the low lights of their life. And, well, think about, when were you the closest to God? When were you the most faithful to God? He says, remember from where you're falling. He, he's saying, hey, you can get it back. If you did it once, you can do it again. And he tells them also in verse 7 about the future reward. He who has an ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There in heaven, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great day coming. And we think about when people die, it's like, well, they're not here and they're dead. No, if they're a Christian, they're as much alive as they've ever been. They're now a disembodied spirit, but one day that body is going to be transformed and raised and, and, and they will meet us at the tree of life. And at the tree of life, you read about in the book of Revelation, you, it's a... Perfect fellowship where there's nothing wrong with anything. And I think we need to think about heaven and why do we want to go to heaven and the fellowship with the deem and where there's love and joy and peace forever and that we will serve him. We'll have some purposeful activity planned for us. What was the church at Pergamum to do? Well, they needed to exercise some church discipline is what they need to do. Instead of overlooking this False doctrine, which he would spread like a cancer. What does he say in verse 16? He tells them to repent. The congregation to repent for tolerating that. Or else I am coming quickly to you, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. What was the sword of his mouth? And you can read that the sword of his mouth was the word of God. And it was the idea of that, that convicting authority and power that he had to correct Error. No one should go to hell with a good conscience. And let them know that, you know, we're concerned about you. And we're here, to, we're trying to help you. We're all sinners in recovery. The, hospital, the church is a hospital for sinners in recovery. And so they were told that they needed to, to correct this false teaching because it was uh, disturbing 
the pure, doctrinal purity and integrity of the church. In Thyatira, they need to understand the reality of divine judgment. That's what motivated them to repent. We look over at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 22, when he said, After she did not want to repent, which showed the Lord's patience with her. Verse 22, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with pestilence, and that would be disciples, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts and will give to each one according to his deeds. And verse 23, I think he's means literally kill like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And I think that would be the way everyone would know. But the idea is that if you don't repent, there are serious consequences. Now, I remember Brother Harold Comer talking about, uh, you know, when we think about you know, getting our, keeping our spiritual focus, we need to think about heaven, hell, and judgment. And that we're all going to be held accountable. Each of us should give an account of himself before God. And, and that God's all-searching eye knows everything about us. And that is terrorizing to one who, who wants to live in sin. But it can be comforting to the child of God that God knows I'm giving my best effort to him to live by faith and to, and to please him. But that accountability really is good for us. That we'll want to make sure that we're always pleasing to God. What was the remedy for Sardis? What would motivate them to be zealous and repent? We're looking at chapter 3. And uh, let's look at at, at verse 2. He says, well, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. So the idea is they need to, to, to wake up out of their spiritual lethargy. And they need to get their spiritual focus back. In verse 3, he says, Remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. And so, what did he say do? He said, go back to the Bible. Remember what you have received and heard. Go back to the original teaching. Go back to the Bible. You know, when I talk to people and have Bible studies, I try to make clear, it doesn't matter what I say or think about anything. My job is just simply to try to point you to what God says. The only thing that matters is what God says about this. So the Bible's always right. So when people, you know, start complaining about, well, they don't do this at church and they don't do this and that, the idea is, well, if you know better, don't you have a responsibility to teach people? I mean, if you think you're so enlightened and so insightful, you have the responsibility, if you are practicing love like Jesus taught, to teach me or anybody that, that, that doesn't see it. So we go back to the Bible. And notice also the influence in verse 4. You had a few at, at Sardis who were faithful, who were pure and holy. Notice he says you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments with this lethargy and deception. They, walk, they will walk with me and wife, for they are worthy. And notice he didn't say for these people who were the righteous ones there, you need to go start another church of the truly enlightened spiritual people. They need to stay there and fulfill their responsibility to be a good influence. Help bring them back. See, the Lord didn't give up on them. And then Laodicea. We're going to spend a few more minutes here on Laodicea. But... 
Laodicea was the church, which must have been shocking. They were so self-satisfied. I don't know if they had their own church building, but if they did, they had the nicest one in the brotherhood. And if they had a local preacher, they probably paid him more than any other church in the brotherhood. Because notice what they, they, they thought of themselves. Verse 17, you say, the Lord says, I've been listening. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're saying there in your business meetings or whatever or at home. He says, I, I am rich and have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. They think, man, we have arrived. We're, we're, we're as good as you can get. I remember I moved to a congregation one time and uh, I was talking to the son of one of the elders and just said, well, I'm, you know, I'm joining the church here. It's a real good church. And I was wondering, are there any areas you think that, that for the church needs to, we need to grow in or we need to improve on? And he said, I think it's pretty much perfect. I, I can't think of anything we need to improve on. You know, the biggest room in the world is for our self-improvement. You know, uh, if we were perfect, we'd be exactly like Jesus Christ in every way. And now we're not, and so we have a room to grow. So, they, the, the church, and they absorbed the culture of their time. The church, uh, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. When there was an earthquake, I think it was like 19 AD or so, when they had an earthquake there, and many of the other cities asked for help from the Romans, they did not ask for aid from Rome. They rebuilt themselves because it was a banking center, and they had a medical school there, and so it was a very wealthy town. And so they were very smug, and they were very self, self-sufficient. So what was going to motivate them to seek the Lord's approval? Well, they needed to get their spiritual focus back. Because this world, you know, Satan's trying to pull us away and the world distracts us. Jesus, before every, he wrote every church, identified himself in verse 14. He says, I am the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And that they see in Jesus that he is a reliable uh, fulfillment of all of God's promises. And all that Jesus was, they were not. They were a bunch of worldly people with a religious veneer. And they need to see who Jesus really was so they would be like him. And they need to understand their true condition. I need to see myself as God sees me. Repentance is a conscience active in the presence of God. It's a sensitive to God's view of me. And in verse 18, what does he, he, he says of them in verse 17, he says, that you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And that must have been shocking to them. And he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They need to get their spiritual focus back. We need to get in touch with a part of us that will live forever. And there's this unseen spiritual world where God is sitting on his throne, surrounded by the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and there's myriads and myriads of angels, and Jesus is at the right hand of God. And we can't see that physically, but the Bible says it's there. And that's what's really permanent and real. And we are surrounded by, there are angels that are sent forth as ministering spirits. And there's Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is a spiritual universe around us that 
if you could just pull back the curtain, we could see the Bible pulls back the curtain and says, yeah, it's real. This is the physical. And we all have an eternal living spirit that is on a journey to eternity. And therefore, Christians have to be a, a Christian counterculture that we do not value the things of the world as the world does. We value the things that God says are important. You know, like uh, sometimes I've, you know, practicing hospitality, I've enjoyed a lot of hospitality. You know, the borders of the kingdom have spread on me and that kind of thing. Well, that's a good thing. And, you know, there's some brethren that they don't feel like their house is as nice as somebody else or they don't have as many nice things and that they are embarrassed to have someone come over to their house. Where did you get that idea? Didn't get it out of the Bible, did you? Uh, we, we put emphasis on, on degrees and uh, how expensive maybe something is, your car or clothes or whatever. And those, you know, there's, there's nice things to enjoy, but how I value things, does that come from the world or does it come from the Bible? So we need to have this spiritual focus about what is truly valuable that's not worldly, but spiritual. And that to motivate zeal for repentance, we all have a close relationship with Jesus Christ. He says in verse 19, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. I hope we all say, I love to repent when I'm wrong. I want to be a good repenter. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I heard someone say, you know, it only takes a second to repent. If I have a, a good, sincere heart and I want to do what's right, I can turn like that. And the Lord will be there. And I can enjoy this fellowship with Jesus. You know, Jesus and I, we're a majority anywhere. If he's with me, I can stand up to anything. And verse 20, he said, verse um, 21, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. He's also my best friend. He is my intercessor. He is my high priest. And he gave his all for me. And he's counting on me. And I don't want to let him down. And I want to walk each day. I want to see Him more clearly, love Him more dearly, and follow Him more nearly because He's the most important thing, person in my life. And we need to think about that spiritual reward. Chapter 3, verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also have overcome and sat down with my Father on His throne. Years ago... Uh, Ted Turner was given an award by the Humanist Society uh, as like, the, I know it was an, he's an atheist, and he was given an award by the Humanist Society as the Humanist of the Year. And in his speech, which he apologized for later, he said, Christianity is a religion for losers. It's not enlightened. And he apologized for that. But the point is, Christians are not losers. And the book of Revelation talks about he who overcomes, that we are the everlasting victors through Jesus Christ. Two worlds can lie and eternity as at stake. And when the dust is settled, we're going to see uh, who won and who lost. In the book of Revelation, the theme is real simple. Jesus and the devil get in a fight. Jesus wins. 
And with Jesus Christ, we will always win. But we have to be willing to repent. Be zealous and repent when we stray from Him. Are we good repenters with zeal for repentance? Repentance is the key that unlocks the treasury of God's mercy and forgiveness. So if you're willing to become a Christian tonight, you can turn from sin, put your faith in Christ, repent, and we'll immerse you into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you need the prayers of the church, you have some struggles in your life, and we want to help you to be restored. Um, We ought to have empathy and support for one another, as I'm sure you do. I remember a brother came forward one time, and he had done several bad things, and they asked the, the oldest brother in the congregation to pray for him. And his brother Jeffers made his way to the front. He was close to 90 years old. He prayed. He said, Lord, help us to understand that we've all been where he is now. We need to repent, but we all need God's grace and God's mercy. We wouldn't go to heaven without it. So if you're subject to the invitation, please come while we stand and sing.